Well, I'm just so grateful for the opportunity to come this morning and be able to bring God's word. There was a man who lived a number of years ago. You're going to recognize who he is, Charles Dickens. Um, he wrote my favorite book in the whole world, other than the Bible, A Christmas Carol. It was about the reclamation and the redemption of a man named Ebenezer Scrooge. But he also wrote another book, and the book was called A Tale of Two Cities. And it was about the city of London and the city of Paris, France. And he wrote it during the time of great revolution in those two cities. It was set in London to begin with in the year 1775. Now, if you remember your history, you know what happened in 1776. The American colonies were about to revolt, and London was going to go through a great revolution during that time. It was going to change that country and that city forever. And then it moved to the city of Paris, France, and over a period of about 20 or 25 years, talks about the French Revolution, which changed that city forever. A tale of two cities. Well, this morning, I don't want to tell you about a tale of two cities. I want to share with you about a tale of two citizens. And as Pastor Kevin mentioned a moment ago, you will be able to find those two people that we're going to talk about in the third and the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John. And here I believe that the Holy Spirit, and, and I believe the Holy Spirit did this for a reason. I, the Bible wasn't just thrown together hodgepodge. The Holy Spirit put things where he wanted them. He did it for a purpose, and he had an intention for doing so. And I really believe with all of my heart, he put chapter 3 and chapter 4, the contents of those chapters, he put them right next to one another for a very specific purpose. He shows us two people who are so vastly different that I honestly believe all of humanity can fit in a great gulf that spans these two individuals. In other words, there was no one in here this morning who was so well-off, so rich, so influential, so financially um, well-off, so moral, that they can claim that they are better than one of our individuals, one of our characters. Nor is there anyone in here this morning who is so poor, so morally destitute, that they can say that they are lower on the cultural scale, on the societal scale, than one of our other individuals. The two people we're going to talk about this morning are an unnamed woman. We simply know her as the woman at the well, and the other one is the one we're, we're more familiar with, a man by the name of Nicodemus. And what I want to do just for a moment this morning is share with you just how different these two individuals were. I want to ram home that difference because it's really going to encapsulate the entire message this morning. Let's look at these two folks just for a moment. First of all, the woman at the well. Of course, she is a woman. Nicodemus was a man. Now, 
um, in 21st century um, America, at least, uh, we have a lot of people who don't seem to know the difference between those two. Half of our politicians and 95% of our college professors can't tell you the difference between a man and a woman. Well, let me tell you, it was different 2,000 years ago. There was a vast difference between men and women. Now, that difference was, was not always something to be proud of. Men had all the influence. They had all the money. They could make all the decisions. Women, not so much. So there was a vast difference in their sex, and it made a difference in that society. But not only was that different between the two, also she was a Samaritan, and he was an Israelite. Now you say, well, you know, those two countries are pretty close together, so what big deal? Well, it was a big deal. If you remember your history, your Old Testament history, the people from Samaria, the ten northern tribes of England, were carried off into captivity by Assyria about 700 years earlier. Now, they didn't carry everybody off, but they carried a vast number of the people of that area off into captivity, never returned. But what they also did was they imported a lot of foreigners from other countries they had occupied and taken prisoner, and they imported them into the region of those ten tribes. Now, over a period of time, you know what happened. The Jewish people that had been there intermarried with the foreigners that had been imported there, the area became known as Samaria, and therefore the people Samaritans. And they were a mixed breed of people. They were part Jew, but they were a lot of foreigners. And the people of Israel, the southern kingdom, the kingdom that, that returned from captivity in Babylon and remained a pure blood, they hated the Samaritans. And the Samaritans didn't think a whole lot of the Israelites either. So there was that difference. She was a pagan. She would have worshipped false gods. She would have worshipped idols. And of course, um, Nicodemus was a Jew. He would have worshipped the one true God, Yahweh. We know him as Jehovah. She was a social outcast. He was part of the in crowd. Everybody in Israel would have wanted to rub elbows with Nicodemus. Nobody, even in her own town, wanted to have anything to do with the woman at the well. She was scripturally ignorant. She didn't have a Bible. She didn't go to Sunday school. She didn't go to synagogue. She didn't know anything about the Bible. Nicodemus was a teacher of Israel. She was immoral. She had been married five times prior to the time that Jesus had met her. And the person she was living with now was not her husband. She was a very immoral woman. Nicodemus was just the opposite. He was very moral. Nicodemus could say, as touching the law, blameless. If you read the third and the fourth chapters, especially the fourth chapter, you'll realize that she was rather bold in the way she reacted to Jesus. Nicodemus, on the other hand, was very cautious. And then finally, she was very, very poor, and Nicodemus was very, very wealthy. 
There was such a vast difference between these two individuals, we literally cannot comprehend the difference. But there was one thing they had in common and one thing only. Both of them were lost and needed a Savior. I want to set the tone for the message this morning. And here's why I wanted to bring out the difference between these two. If Jesus would seek out a divine encounter with a rich, wealthy, well-to-do Jew, and he would seek out a divine encounter with an immoral, scripturally ignorant Samaritan, then there is not one person in this congregation this morning. There is not one family member that you know. There was not one friend that you have. There was not one co-worker that you rub elbows with during the week. There is not one person inside this sanctuary. There is not one person outside this sanctuary. There is not one person who has ever been born on this planet, nor will there be any person ever born on this planet that Jesus does not love, that Jesus did not die for, and that Jesus does not want for his own. Everybody, everybody is included in the plan of salvation. Jesus makes that perfectly clear in the lives of these two people this morning. Two individuals were about to face the greatest evangelist that ever lived. Jesus loved people. Jesus loved people in a way that you and I can't even begin to hope to do. He knew people, and I'm so glad Pastor Kevin brought the Christmas message from the first chapter of the Gospel of John. Jesus knew people. Do you remember what he said? Without him, Jesus, without him was nothing made that has been made. That means you. That means me. He made you. He made me. He made the woman at the well, and he made Nicodemus. And he knew them better than they knew themselves. Jesus knew exactly what to say. He knew exactly how to say it. Jesus was not going to leave the encounter with these two people and go, man, I wish I'd thought about that. Wow, I wish I'd thought about that verse. I wish I'd have said it this way or that way. I wonder if I was very, very effective. I wonder if I missed something. Jesus knew exactly what to say and how to say it. And more than anyone else that ever lived, Jesus wanted these two people to have a personal relationship with him. And in each of these two encounters, Jesus tailored the message. He tailored what he what he told them so that they could and should be able to respond to it. He wanted both of them to believe in him. He wanted both of them to trust him. He wanted both of them to put everything else second and him first. So this morning we're going to begin with looking at a gospel encounter. In other words, Jesus the particulars of Jesus speaking 
to these two individuals. And then we're going to see that both of these individuals gave some evidence that they knew a little about Jesus. Now, it wasn't a lot. It wasn't complete. But they gave some evidence that there was something special about this guy they were talking to. This guy that they had gone to meet or he had come to meet them, there was something special about him. They gave some evidence of that. So we'll see what they said about Jesus in that. But then we're going to see what Jesus said to them, the gospel essence. In other words, what did Jesus tell each of these two individuals? And Jesus boiled it down. As much as the Bible is important for for all walks of life and everything that we do, Jesus took all of the scriptures. He took everything and he boiled it down to where it would fit in a thimble. And he gave it to these two individuals. And then finally, we will see the gospel effect. How did what Jesus tell these two people affect the lives of Nicodemus and the woman at the well? First, let's look at the uh, gospel encounter. If you have your Bibles open, look in the third chapter, and we're going to begin in verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night. Now, again, if you go back and remember last week's message in the first chapter, in the first verse of the Gospel of John, John tells us an awful lot about Jesus in a single verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. John tells us a whole lot about Jesus in one single verse. Well, he does the same thing with Nicodemus right here. He tells us that Nicodemus was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin because it says he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. That was a Sanhedrin. But we also know something else about Nicodemus. For all of his wealth and position, he was a man who lived in fear because it says that he came to Jesus by night. Now, there's a lot of reasons that have been given for why Jesus might have come to Nicodemus by night. I mean, after all, maybe he was conducting Sanhedrin business all day long and he was in meetings and and he didn't have any time to go during the day and so he got away at night. Well, is that possible? Maybe. But you also have to remember the times that we're in. Jerusalem was an occupied city by a foreign power, by Rome. Roman soldiers guarded the streets at night. People just didn't go out very much at night. And you also have to realize that even at this time early in Jesus' ministry, the Sanhedrin had already decided that this Jesus character was not going to be their Messiah. And before very much longer, they were going to find out ways that they could get rid of him, to dispose of him. They didn't want him around. So for Nicodemus to go see Jesus, he would have had to sneak out And he went by night. So he was a very cautious individual. So he came to Jesus at night. Now, let me say this about old Nicodemus. Nicodemus would have been a man that you and I would have gladly welcomed into any Baptist church in the country today. You see, Nicodemus was wealthy. 
We like those kind of members. <laughs> Nicodemus was wealthy and he would have tied, tied. We really like those kind of members. Nicodemus was conservative. Listen, we wouldn't have had a hard time rubbing elbows with Nicodemus and inviting him out to lunch after the service and talk politics because Nicodemus would have voted the way we wanted him to vote. Nicodemus was a strict inerrantist. In other words, Nicodemus, being a Pharisee, believed the entire scriptures. Now, all he had was the Old Testament, but he believed it word for word. He believed God had inspired it. In fact, Nicodemus' knowledge of the Old Testament would have put all of us to shame this morning. He would have memorized large patches of it. So he was an inerrantist. And like most Baptists, Nicodemus was afraid of commitment. Oh, listen, we would have liked old Nicodemus. We would have welcomed him into our fellowship with very few questions asked. But Nicodemus also knew he was missing something. For all of his wealth, for all of all of the, all the rest of that stuff that he had, he was missing something. So he sought an encounter with Jesus. But now let's skip over to the fourth chapter and look in verses 1 through 7. The Pharisees had heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. When the Lord learned of this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. Now I want to stop just here for a moment and make a comment. Now I know the Bible is absolutely positively true, not one word of untruth in all of the scriptures, but in all reality, Jesus did not have to go through Samaria. In fact, no self-respecting Jew would have ever gone through Samaria. If you turn in the back of your Bibles and you find in your maps where Jerusalem is and you find out where Jesus was going to wind up going to the western shore of the Sea of Galilee to someplace like Cana or, or, or Capernaum, it's a straight shot north. Just go north. But no Jew would have done that at that time because they'd have had to go through where? Samaria. So what they did was they went east down to Jericho, crossed the Jordan River, went up the eastern side of the Jordan River, went all the way around the Sea of Galilee to get to where they were going. Why did they do that? They hated Samaritans. They wouldn't be caught dead going to Samaria or speaking to a Samaritan. But of course the Bible wasn't wrong. It said he had to go through Samaria. Jesus had to go through Samaria. There was a divine encounter there. There was a woman at a well he needed to meet. So Jesus went to Samaria. Now, these encounters are slightly different. Did you notice that Nicodemus sought out Jesus? But Jesus sought out the woman at the well. You and I are much more like the woman at the well than we are in Nicodemus. You see, Jesus seeks us out. Now for me, oh, I had the most wonderful childhood. I grew up in a godly family. I had godly parents. They told me about Jesus before I even knew how to talk. All they ever talked about in my home was Jesus. He was always the topic of conversation at some point in the day. They talked about Jesus. They took me to church. 
So I learned about him as a very small child. I came to know him, know him as a very small child, as a seven-year-old. Maybe for some of you, it was that way. Maybe for some of you, you learned about him in a Sunday school class from a Sunday school teacher, and that's how you came to know Christ. Maybe for some, it was you had a teenage friend, and, and they shared with you about Jesus. Maybe some others in here, it was a co-worker who gave you a testimony one day about how Jesus had changed their lives. Maybe for some of you here this morning, a friend invited you to a church, maybe this church, and you heard a gospel message. And in that you got saved. All of those things were Jesus seeking you out. He sought you out. We look back on those things, and those things were Jesus drawing us to himself. So we have the gospel encounter. Two vastly different people have a divine encounter with the living God. But now also, let's look at the gospel evidence. Because as we read these passages, we're going to realize that these two individuals recognized there was something different about Jesus. They said something in the scripture that make us indicate they knew a little bit about him. They knew a little bit. Now, one knew more than the other, but they both knew there was something special about Jesus. Look at what Nicodemus says in verse 2 of the third chapter. Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God were not with him. Think about that just for a moment. Look at what Nicodemus calls Jesus. He calls him rabbi. Well, that word simply means teacher. But he just didn't leave it there. He says, we, are, we, we know you're a teacher who what? Who has come from God. Now, folks, listen, that's walking in pretty high cotton. Jesus was a teacher who has come from God. But then he adds something else to it, for no one could perform their miraculous signs that you're performing. Word had gotten back to Nicodemus, maybe from Galilee. Maybe he had heard some things going on in Jerusalem at the time. But there was a stories about this miracle worker who was causing the blind eyes to see and lame people to walk, deaf people to hear. He was curing leprosy. He was doing it by the hundreds, if not the thousands. Nobody had done that since Elijah. And Elijah had lived hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. But he doesn't stop there. We know you couldn't perform those miraculous signs unless God were with him. So Nicodemus knew there was something different about Jesus, something in what he was teaching, something in what he was doing struck a chord with Nicodemus. Now let's look at the woman at the well in chapter 4, verse 19. Sir, she says, and she's speaking to Jesus, I can see that you are a prophet. And again, she recognized it because Jesus had already told her some things, told her some things about herself that he couldn't possibly have known. So she recognized that Jesus must have been a prophet. Jesus was somebody that needed to be listened to. There was something special, something different about Jesus. Now, these folks did not have complete knowledge about who Jesus was, but they knew there was something special about him. I want to make another point here this morning before I go on. 
I wish that the modern church of the 21st century recognized just how special Jesus is. Now, I'm not talking about Charleston Baptist Church. Praise the dear Lord. But in general, the church of the 21st century has lost its awe and its love for Jesus. We know him so much more than they did. One recognized him as a teacher and a miracle worker. One recognized him as a prophet. We know him from the four gospels as the crucified, risen Savior. We know him from um, the gospel of John in the first chapter as the second member of the triune Godhood. We know him from the Old Testament and Isaiah as the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. We know him from the book of Revelations as a soon and coming king of kings. Both Nicodemus and the woman at the well knew there was something special about Jesus that could change their lives forever, but we know so much more. Don't lose your awe of Jesus. He's worthy to be worshipped. He's worthy to be prayed to. He's worried to be read about. He's worried he's worthy of to be talked about. Don't lose your awe of Jesus. So we see that both of them gave some, gave some evidence that they knew something special about Jesus. But now we're going to look at the gospel essence. Now we're not going to look at what they said to Jesus. We're going to look at what Jesus said to them. What Jesus said to them that had the potential to change their lives forever. And again, this is the gospel boiled down. It would fit in a thimble. This is the gospel reduced down to right here. To a single sentence, a single phrase, a single verse. This is the gospel reduced down to where you can't reduce it down anymore. John chapter 3, verse 3. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. And then skip down to verse 16. We all know this one. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now did you notice what Jesus just did for Nicodemus. First of all, he told him what he needed. Then he told him how to get it. What did Nicodemus need? He needed to be born again. How was Nicodemus supposed to do that? Believe. Be born again. Believe. Pretty simple. But now let's go to the fourth chapter and see what he told the woman at the well. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Skip down just for some context to verse 13 and 14. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks of this water, speaking of water coming out of the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, <coughs> excuse me, water welling up to eternal life. Again, 
he does the same thing he did for Nicodemus. He told her what she needed, living water. But then he told her exactly how to get it. Ask, how difficult is that? You need living water. How do you get it? Ask. Now let me make an important point here. I think the Gospel of John is probably the most chronological gospel we have. Now, probably not all of them are exactly one thing happened after another thing. There are probably none like that, but I think the Gospel of John is closest to that. And I think that probably that the encounter with the woman at the well happened shortly after. In fact, you read the beginning parts of the fourth chapter, you'll, you'll see that. He has an encounter with Nicodemus, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin begin to kind of get mad at him for doing what he's doing and baptizing people and equating him with John the Baptist and things begin to get rustled up. And so Jesus leaves shortly after that and he goes through Samaria and he meets the woman at the well. It probably happened a short period of time after. But did you notice that Jesus did not use the same terminology in both encounters? I don't want you to miss that. He told Nicodemus, you must be born again. He told the woman at the well, you need living water. Why? Just a week or two later, why didn't he go to the woman at the well and say, you need to be born again? I mean, didn't she need to be born again? So why did Jesus use a different terminology? Why did Jesus do it differently? Well, let's answer that question by asking a question. Suppose you get in your Wayback Machine and you go back and you get to talk to Nicodemus and you get to ask Nicodemus a question. And here's the question that I want you to ask old Nick. Nick, what's the one thing in life that you don't need? Now, there would have been many. Nicodemus had it all. But you press him on the point. Nick, what's the one thing in life you simply don't need or don't want? Well, I know exactly what Nicodemus would have told you. I don't want to be born again. I don't need to be born again. I was born all right the first time. Are you kidding me? I was born a Jew. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. As touching the law, blameless. My ancestry can be traced back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I've never worshipped an idol. I've never used God's name in vain. I've never violated the Sabbath. Sabbath. I've never stole from anyone. I've never borne false witness. My pedigree is faultless. I can hear Nicodemus right now under his breath saying, thanks, but no thanks. I was born just right the first time. Now, Imagine Jesus going to the woman at the well, telling her she needed to be born again. Folks, listen, I don't have to imagine what she would say. She would say, are you kidding me? Of course I needed to be born again. I was born all wrong the first time. I was born a woman. I was born a Samaritan. I was born unwanted, unloved, uncared for. Of course I need to be born again. But now imagine asking the woman at the well the same question you just asked Nicodemus. Tell me, madam, 
What's the one thing in life that you don't need? Oh, I know exactly what she would have told you. I don't need any more water from this stupid well. I'm so sick and tired of coming to this well. I got to come to this well in the heat of the day. And the reason I have to do that is because all the townspeople hate me. The women won't be seen with me. So I have to come at a time of day when nobody else is here. I have to carry these heavy clay pots up here. I have to draw water that's even heavier and carry that water back to town. I got to do it all the time. I've been doing it for week after week, month after month, year after year. I don't want to hear about any more water. Did you notice that Jesus didn't use the same approach for both? You see, one approach would have never worked. Jesus saw the one thing that each of them needed but didn't want. It was the one thing they didn't want but most desperately, desperately needed. Now, for those of you who witnessed this morning and make a habit of witnessing, listen, I'm not putting down witnessing in a certain way, if you use the four spiritual laws or, or the way of the master or the Roman road. Listen, don't stop witnessing. But I want you to realize something, and you know this. People are different. Jesus knew what was in a person. Jesus had the luxury of being able to look inside and know what a person needed. You don't have that luxury. I don't have that luxury. So when we witness to people... If at all possible, get to know them. Get to know the person you want to share with. Find out their needs. Find out how in their lives the gospel will meet that need. Offer a person who has everything. Now, this is counterintuitive. You're going to think I'm nuts. Offer a person who has everything, something they don't have. Offer them something that will cost them everything. A real relationship with Jesus Christ. Offer the person who doesn't have anything. Who's destitute. Who's on the very, very bottom. Offer something free for the asking. A real relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the essence of the gospel. The good news Jesus told them exactly what they needed. Now this morning, let's look at the effect the gospel had on these two lives. In the first eight verses of the third chapter, it seems like Nicodemus and Jesus are carrying on a deep theological discussion. That is until Jesus tries to explain the new birth, the spiritual birth to Nicodemus. And from that point on, Nicodemus only says one thing. And here's what he says. How can that be? Meaning that he doesn't understand anything about the new birth. And from that point on, Jesus is the only one speaking. And for the next 12 verses during this divine appointment, Jesus shares as simply and compassionately the greatest passage on salvation you will ever find in the scriptures you see it includes john 3 16 but it also includes john 17 and 18 
Look with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. And as far as we know, when Jesus completed speaking, Nicodemus got up and left the same way he came, in the dark, physically and spiritually. But now let's look at his encounter with the woman at the well. Let's look at the effect that it had on her. Verse 28 of chapter 4. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Skip down to verse 39 again for some context. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with him, and he stayed for two days. And because his, of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said, but now we have heard, your, uh, heard for ourselves, and we know that this man truly is the Savior of the world. What an incredible difference between Nicodemus and the woman at the well. You see, not only did she get saved, but it seems to me like she went in and evangelized her entire town. The entire town that disrespected her. The entire town that wouldn't have anything to do with her. The entire town that wouldn't be seen with her. She went back and told them about Jesus and evangelized the entire town. Now you have to ask yourself a question again. Why would a conservative... Bible-believing, good, moral man reject the gospel and an immoral woman so freely accept it. Why was it so hard for Nicodemus to believe and so easy for the woman at the well? Let's answer that question by asking a couple more. These are pretty easy. Who's more likely to be saved? A child or an adult? We know the answer, don't we? In fact, we know that answer so well. Do you know what's going on right now in our preschool building? We're telling babies and we're telling children all about Jesus. You know why we're doing that? They don't have all the junk inside that you and I do. So we're telling them about Jesus because we know it's easier to reach a child than it is an adult. Who's more easy to, who's easier to be saved, a poor person or a rich person? Well, even Jesus told us that answer. It's harder for a rich person to get saved than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Who's easier to be saved, a person struggling with some great hardship or someone who has no problems at all? Well, again, we know the answer to that question. Who's easier to be saved? A person living in a mud hut in the jungles of Peru or your next door neighbor living in a fine house? Can I tell you what I've learned from my study of these two individuals? 
Now, I believe with all of my heart, with all of my heart, God can do anything. But here's what I've learned. God always finds it easier to fill an empty vessel than to empty a full vessel. You see, Nicodemus was full of himself and needed to be emptied. The woman at the well was emptied and needed to be filled. And when she heard what Jesus had to offer, she couldn't go another moment without it. When Nicodemus heard what Jesus had to offer, he simply got up and walked out. He left the encounter religious. She left the encounter redeemed. How will you leave your encounter with Jesus this morning? I want to ask you that question again and go back to what we mentioned in the beginning. If Jesus loved and desired with all of his heart for a rich, moral, well-to-do Jew to believe in him, and he wanted a poor, immoral Samaritan to believe in him, then there is no one in this sanctuary this morning Jesus does not love and wants to believe in him. You have been brought here this morning for a divine encounter. How will you leave this morning? Will you leave religious or will you leave redeemed? Let's pray. Father, this morning, what a marvelous contrast between these two individuals. You have shown us the height of human goodness and told us that wasn't good enough. And you have shown us the depth of human depravity and told us that's not bad enough for you to redeem. Father, I pray that however you have spoken to the human hearts here this morning, that they will listen to your spirit and they will respond to this one we call Jesus. He is the only one deserving of the glory. He's the only one that will get it. In Jesus' precious name, amen.